Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a massive variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device available on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you happen to have in your hands. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, or how about Wild, the new memoir by Cheryl Strayed, or Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is like TiVo for radio. This is probably not quite what you were expecting. My guest today is Jessica Keener. She's the author of the debut novel Night Swim, now available from Fiction Studio Books. She's a very good writer, a very good guest, and has lived an interesting life. And uh, she and I are going to be talking about all kinds of things in just a moment. Uh, I should mention right now that my daughter is having a meltdown presently. Uh, I don't know if you can hear that. It's on the other side of the door. My wife is trying to keep it uh, away from this uh, recording. There is some domestic chaos in my midst. Uh, And I should also add that my dog, Walter, to compound the issue, ate some raisins earlier today. Uh, He's my little uh, French bulldog. He ate some of my daughter's raisins a little while ago. And raisins are apparently toxic for dogs, according to Google. 
uh, as are grapes and uh, onions, I believe, and chocolate. Not good for dogs. Potentially lethal. Uh, and by the way, Googling anything uh, related to medicine and health, not a good idea. Always terrifying. Uh, always a wormhole of uh, mortal fear. So uh, my wife did call the vet, and it turns out that we may have to feed Walter hydrogen peroxide. This is what our veterinarian is now telling us. You force hydrogen peroxide into the dog somehow, and within 15 minutes he is supposed to regurgitate significantly. But uh, we're going to hold off on that. I think that's the plan. That's what we've decided for now. My wife sort of deferred to me on this one and made me the decision maker, and uh, I opted to refrain. Mostly because it was a you know a small child-sized box of raisins, kind of a toddler size. So it's not like he took in a huge quantity. It's not like he took in uh, a Costco portion. So we're in wait-and-see mode. And if he starts to look ill, if it appears as though he's uh, drifting off into renal failure or something of that nature, we'll do something about it. But at the moment, we're taking a more relaxed approach, which I'm hoping isn't negligent or somehow inhumane. And the problem, as far as I see it, is that a vet is always going to err on the side of caution. That's what any doctor does in a situation like this. And you call up a vet and you say, my dog ate some raisins. Or my dog ate some chocolate. What should I do? The vet is almost always going to tell you to do the safe thing. Every time. Because if he tells you it's no big deal. You know, it's like a 1 in 50 shot that something bad is going to happen. Uh, and then the dog dies. Well, he's on the hook for that. And he's no longer your vet. You know? He's just lost a customer. And that's the thing about medicine. You know? Most doctors, they see you as money. They think of your internal organs and the delicate balance of your existence, and they see gold. So uh, we're going to continue to monitor the situation. The vet also said that it's better if you have fresh hydrogen peroxide, you know, to induce vomiting. And I didn't even know this stuff could go bad. I didn't even know that was possible. And I, I also didn't know that you could actually drink it, even for the purposes of making yourself sick. In my mind, I had it, you know, that it was poisonous. But you, if you drank hydrogen peroxide, you would die. But uh, thinking about it, uh, you know, in a more concentrated manner, I guess it's just hydrogen and peroxide, whatever that is, you know. How bad can hydrogen be? So, uh, yeah. So I guess if, if Walter does happen to uh, start to exhibit early signs of distress, we would first have to go to the store and buy some new hydrogen peroxide, some fresh hydrogen peroxide, and then we would have to come home and somehow pry the dog's mouth open, which of course is no easy feat, because he's a bulldog, and he has the underbite. But somehow I guess we'd have to do that, and then pour large quantities of hydrogen peroxide down his gullet. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the procedure would require a significant quantity of hydrogen peroxide, you know, like at least a cup. Or, or perhaps a pint. It all just seems like a lot of work. Uh, otherwise, I guess one quick celebrity-related anecdote that comes to mind uh, along these lines. A friend of mine is a veterinarian here in town, here in Los Angeles, or, or at least she was. Uh, she's actually a friend of a friend, kind of, and she was out of uh, just out of vet school. This was years ago, and I think she was doing her residency. Like, I, I think vets do residencies. I don't know how it works, but... The point is, she was a new vet, 
and she was young and she was working the night shift because these are the hours that they give to the young vets. And so she's, she's working, uh, the night shift on emergency duty and it's quiet for the most part. And she's sort of sleepy. And then the door opens up and, uh, suddenly there's some sort of commotion out in the lobby and she goes out there and Queen Latifah walks into the office, uh, you know, sometime after midnight and she's with a friend and she's got two big dogs with her and, uh, Queen Latifah, AKA Dana Owens, I believe that's her name. Uh, she walks up to the desk and she's a little bug eyed and she says, we're having a party at my house and my dogs just ate some mushrooms. So, uh, my friend had to suppress her laughter and then she had to treat these dogs medically, uh, both of whom were shrooming in significant fashion as was Queen Latifah and her friend. I'm pretty sure. So, uh, Queen Latifah and her friend then had to kind of hang out in the veterinary, you know, in the veterinarian's office, uh, while they were tripping. And, uh, my friend was, was, uh, helping these animals. Uh, at least that, that's how the story was told to me. That's how I'm remembering it. And, uh, I can't quite recall exactly what happened after that. Like, I, I don't know exactly how you treat a dog who is on mushrooms. You know, like what, what do you do? Like, do you talk them down? You give them a glow stick or like, uh, some water, you know, or, or maybe, uh, maybe you give them hydrogen peroxide. I, I honestly don't know. It's something of a mystery. And, uh, maybe later after this is done, I will Google it. Esther, see, oh, see, this is awful. I'm not going to get it right. But what happens is someone, a Jew that's going to get killed gets saved. And I think it's Esther the Queen saves um, this person from getting killed from the evil Mordechai or whatever his name is. Oh, no, Haman, Haman is his name. That's oh, nice, someone gets every saved. Jew in the world is going to be rolling now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I don't know any. I mean, I'm, I was raised Catholic, and I have, uh, I think, a very minimal understanding of it as well. You know. Well, Haman was this evil dude, and you know, a lot of people say you know he's sort of a Hitler type. You know, he was out to just destroy the Jews. So um, Esther prevented that from happening. So it's a great celebration. Oh, that's good. That's a happy day. It's a happy day, and they make, I know, so many Jewish holidays are not, and they make this pastry called Hamantaschen, which has the word Haman in it, H-A-M-A-N, and, you know, it's um, to celebrate that. It's full of, like, filled, I don't know, sweets and things. And, so do you have one? Did you get one? I did get, I went, you know, there's this little Russian um, grocery down the street where I live. I live in Brookline, Mass., which um, has a lot of Russian immigrant types who live here. Um, and for those who don't know Brookline, it's right down, it's contiguous to Boston. So there's a Russian grocery store around the corner and they made some homemade hamantaschen. I also learned that today, March 8th, is International Women's Day. Did you know that? I did. I, I know that because of Facebook and everyone's celebrating that. So, okay. I had no idea that that existed. So she was telling me what a great day it was and... Um, in her Russian accent, her husband woke her up this morning and brought her coffee and flowers, and he's going to have something special for her at the end of the day, and she just was going on and on about it, so I, I, I didn't know. You're kidding me. You mean like this guy's getting his wife flowers and bringing, him, bringing her breakfast in bed because it's yeah. International Women's Day? Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. So um, I had no idea. I really, I just, 
I feel very stupid that I, I just didn't know about this day, this no, Women's gonna, Day. I was going to say, I'm like, I don't, I'm just not a participant in the human community. <laughs> so, so then I asked her, and this is all, you know, she doesn't speak English that well, so I wanted to know how it got started. And so the person who works with her said it got started around um, 19, I don't know, I don't have the exact date, but it wasn't so long ago. Was it a hundred? Oh, I'm not going to say. But someone invented it because um, they didn't feel, you know, because women weren't being, you know, were treated as second-class citizens, and this was a way to celebrate all women. So it's not just sort of a hallmark Mother's Day. Um, but anyway, I guess it's really a big deal. Well, I want to talk to you. I mean, you mentioned that you have a lot of Russian immigrants in your neighborhood, and, and I actually do too. I live in an uh, area of Los Angeles that's uh, heavily Russian. Oh. And I, you know, and uh, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because obviously the, we have uh, many delightful neighbors, but there are several older Russians, and I think mm-hmm. these are the people who might have come over. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think they like me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I um, like walking my dog. This is this is my experience, and I, I you can I mean if my wife were here, she would verify this. Like if I'm out walking by myself, mm-hmm. and I pass these people. And I'm talking people that I see repeatedly. You know, these are my mm-hmm. neighbors. Uh, I will walk past them on the sidewalk, and they will avert their eyes and not re- not acknowledge me. But if I'm if I'm with my daughter, they always say hello. Oh, okay. So are these Russian Jews? I I, I imagine some of them are. I mean, I don't. Or, I, 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 we haven't gotten into it, so I don't know. But I mean, I know oh. in, in Hollywood there. Are, you know, we have a, a lot of Russian Jews, but. Um, I don't know. It's just it's just cultural, and I'm thinking like, is this the old country? Is this just? I mean, it must be a custom because it's so consistent, uh, and particularly consistent among the elders. And I just don't know if it's just me. Maybe it's me. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I, I also live. I live in a neighborhood that has a lot of sort of um, Hasidic type Jews, and. Um, you know, it's a very neighborhoody place where I live. You walk up the door and, you know, you just can't avoid running into someone who's, you know, you know the dog's name, you don't know the person's name, but you've seen them for 20 years. I've lived here for about 15, but all kinds of people. But there's a certain group of kind of more, I don't know, Hasidic types or very orthodox. And if I'm walking by myself as a woman, the men won't look at me and some of the women won't. And I feel offended. And I have another friend, thankfully, who is also sort of an Orthodox Jewish person, and she, I can complain to her, and she'll explain why um, that is, that it's not meant to be um, discourteous or rude. Um, you know, and I think it can be interpreted that way, but it, it's it's not, you know, in terms of people not paying attention to me, they're not doing that to be rude toward me. Yeah. So yeah. that helped me a little bit, because I, I, I used to get really upset about that. Yeah, no, it makes me, because, I mean, I'm not like... I'm not. Su- I mean, I'm a very friendly person, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not like running up to them, like wanting to hug them or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I feel like I have a pretty measured uh, approach. You know, I'm just trying to like make eye contact and say a hello or something. Particularly if it's someone you see repeatedly, that feels silly to me to not. Right. Hello, you know, but uh, there, you know. there might be something. There might be something that I don't know about. You know, that that we don't know about. That that is a cultural thing or a custom or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like too, like sometimes Americans are. I mean, uh, I've heard this said about Americans by people from other countries that we're like, we're too friendly. Like we're too, and there's something superficial about it. Like we're like, oh, hey, you know, and how we always use superlatives and we overuse the word awesome and things like that. Like I, I can kind of understand that. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because um, I've lived in different places, not tons of places, but 
I did, my husband's from the South, and so I lived in the South for a while, and everyone says hello. Everyone says hi when you walk on the street and you pass them. If you don't know them, they just will say hello to you and they'll look at you. And then, you know, when we come back up here to the Boston area, it's not the custom to say hello, except, you know, in my neighborhood, to to pass people that you know and say hello. It's sort of much more unusual. And I'll joke with my husband when we've returned because we'll say, oh, yeah, we must be we back in Boston. No one's saying hello. <laughs> so, you know, it does kind of, you know, there are those customs. You know, and we did live in Hungary for a while, too, and um, Hungarians tend to look away and not smile. So, you know, the Italians will follow you. <laughs> so <laughs> See, it I'm does Italian. kind of depend. I'm, I'm Italian. That's my problem. Oh, so there you go. I want to just, like, trail people. I'm like a shelter dog or something. <laughs> uh, so where in the South is your husband from? Well, he was actually born in Canada, but he grew up most of his life from about, you know, age three um in georgia in atlanta oh okay okay so So, you know did you like it down there or did you find yourself wanting to go back to massachusetts um it was a shock it i um at first found myself sometimes often coming home and saying what did so and so mean when they said they really wanted me to come over for dinner but then they never have us over or you know there was a certain I needed him to interpret the friendliness factor. Like, were they? Did they really mean, you know, that they wanted us to come over, or is that just the you know, the southern friendly thing? So, I found I, that I really had to sort of ask him a lot about um, behaviors in terms of friendliness and how someone was talking. And for another example, is we had this neighbor who ended up hating us actually because we were building an addition to our house, and so. Out of courtesy, we we went over to show them the plans for the house, and we sat down with him, and he started to tell a story, which is what a lot of Southerners do. They tell stories, um, which was also fascinating, and I like that aspect. But he told a story about punching some person out at work, and I don't know. It was sort of a bizarre story that had nothing to do with our architectural plans. (laughs) And so afterwards, again, we went home. I said, "Hun." Um, was he trying to tell us something like he didn't approve of what we're doing? <laughs> it was like a fable. It was like a fable called like you know with the the, the the hidden moral was like don't build or something. <laughs> right, right. And you know, and eventually, you know, he did say, "I don't want what I really don't. What I want is for you to move your addition to the other side of your yard." So he finally did come out and sort of say that. Um, but you know, he was. I don't know. He didn't really represent. I don't want to say that he represented Southerners. He was sort of creepy and. Um, you know, we kind of wondered what he, if he was violent towards his wife and he drank and, you know, we heard stories from the neighbors that he woke up one day and was, couldn't find his car because he had gotten so drunk and was blaming someone for stealing it. You know, he was kind of wild. Oh, so. wow. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say all this because my family, uh, my parents are both from the South. They're from Louisiana. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I have like, you know, a huge extended family. Uh, down there, and then you know a few uh, other uh, scattered family members in like other states like Alabama and Virginia and stuff like that. But most of them are Louisiana, and I spent a, you know I grew up going down there. And what I find is that like I've you know I've always said there's something sort of effortless and beautiful about the social graces of Southern people, uh, mm-hmm. the manners and the ease with which they uh, can like welcome you into their home and just things mm-hmm. like things like that that don't necessarily always come. Uh, incredibly easy to, to most people, you know, it seems mm-hmm. like there's something cultural and, and wonderful about it, but at the same time, 
uh, there's still conflict and there's still human beings. And when that stuff happens, it's often done with the same sort of, uh, you know, uh, politesse or um, there's like a smile or there's like a gentleness to it, but it's still, uh, you know, dark. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's, there's, not, there's layers, you know, Yeah, I think. It's not like overt where there's somebody in, in like Brooklyn or, or something mm-hmm. like uh, telling you to go f yourself. It's more like you know, it's done. Mm-hmm. It's done gently, and then when you leave the room or something like, you know, it's yeah. Or you kind of wonder what kind of under you know, you feel this sort of underground something or others. I mean, you know, they there is sort of a colorness to the language, and um, you know, I, I, it sort of grew on me. And in fact, the reason why I ended up meeting my husband in the first place um, was because I was obsessed with reading um, Southern writers. One year, I had actually had this bone marrow transplant a long time ago, and the, when I it was a successful um, transplant, but afterwards I didn't have an immune system, so I had to sort of stay in my apartment, and I could go out, but I couldn't really be around a lot of people, you know, crowds, because I didn't have um, an immune system. So I started, I got obsessed with reading Southern writers, and then I decided I just had to go south. And so I had a friend who um, was going to law school down there. And when I was able finally to go out and, you know, I was completely sort of scot-free, go back to the rest of the world and be normal, I went south. And, and that's why I met my husband for my visit going to Atlanta to visit my friend who was going to law school. So, um, you know, I was definitely fascinated by the language that I was reading about in the books and then... I don't know. There is something, you know, the weather and the tall trees and magnolia flowers and something about it well, kind no, of got under my skin. It's beautiful, and it's also it's also got, I think, uh, in some ways, uh, a much more distinct cultural identity than a lot of parts of the country. Uh, mm. Because I grew up in the Midwest, and you know, uh, not to, I mean, where, uh, you know, Milwaukee and Indianapolis. Okay. Uh, I split my time between them, and you know. Uh, both places have their merits, but I mean, like, there's really not that much difference between Indianapolis and Cincinnati, uh, mm-hmm. at, at least in terms of like how things look and uh, the food and the restaurant. You know what I'm saying? But like, I feel like mm-hmm. you go down south and there's just m- a more distinct situation visually, and in terms, mm-hmm. in terms of the language and in terms of the food and in terms of the music and uh, you know, that's my feeling on it anyway. That's been my experience yeah. of it. You know, it, it's definitely and it is it is. Um, I, I loved it for that. I really grew to, you know, love the, the certain foods, you know, the, the fried everythings and the collard greens and um, stuff that I just had never eaten, um, hush puppies. Um, Sweet tea. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that that part and also really the way that they talk. I mean, there is this charm that um, I really took to, but it took a while and, um, I didn't live there long enough, really, maybe about four years. And it did help. My husband was, you know, Southern, his his family. And so that sort of gave me an inside a little bit. But Now, wait, did you, oh. did you, does your husband have the Southern thing? Does he have the accent and the charm and everything? Was that Yeah, of- he does. He's super friendly. He's, I mean, now he's been, we've been living in Boston now for, what, 15 years. And so he's really lost a lot of his southern accent until he starts to talk to someone in the south but we used to joke a lot when we first met because he would just say words i didn't understand you know like the word you know lemon he would say he'd say lemon it just it just sounded different you know yeah i have a a good buddy from atlanta and he's got like that he's got that distinct atlanta accent i'm trying to think of Mm -hmm. words that he says uh like he says like what like when he says like (laughs) 
Sometimes that's know? good. Yeah, it's sort of nice. Yeah. Uh, or he, or my husband will say, I always say my T is like Atlanta, and he, you know, he tells me, no, it's Atlanta. Yeah. So you don't say the T. So that kind of thing. So now, where did you guys meet? How did that happen? Well, that was me being obsessed with reading the Southern writers, and I had a friend who was going to law school in at Emory in Atlanta. And so um, when I finally went back, I went back to graduate school for writing. I went to Brown's program, and so it was a two-year program. And in the summertime, um, I, I finally decided I was going to go and visit my friend, Kelly. And so I did for a week and stayed with her. And her locker mate was this guy named Barr. And um, locker mate meaning they both went to law school together and they shared a locker. <laughs> And so she wanted me to meet her locker mate. So he came over, and I know you're going to think this is really hokey, but um, she introduced us, and I saw this flash of white, like lightning, seriously. And we shook hands, and then we just started yakking. We just really hit it off, and um, we went on a tour. He gave us a tour of Emory, the campus, which included a tour of the men's bathroom that had about I don't know, 14 marble urinals. He just thought that was sort of an interesting little artifact. <laughs> and, you know, marble urinals. So, and then at the same time, as part of our tour, we passed a, um, a church, and the doors swung open, and all these people poured out, and it was a wedding. And so we were just surrounded by these wedding people. And little did we know that, you know, we, we got, you know, Bar and I got married. I don't know. Maybe it was a year and a half, two years later. Wow! And you saw so, so you, wait. You saw a flash of white light for real. I really did. I know that sounds completely hokey, but I really did. Where? I mean, like I like, can't explain it. I mean, I, I, I he, I, she, we were in her kitchen. He walks in and she introduced me, and I just, I don't know. It's almost like it's. It wasn't exactly like a flash photograph of a camera, but kind of like that. In my mind, I, I'm, did it happen the moment that your hands touched, or did it happen the moment mm, you saw him? I would say right before, and then the handshake. So oh, the, handshake. the whole, just that whatever that gestalt, that two second moment was, wow. and you know, our just our chemistry really clicked, you know. And um, but anyway, of course, as usual. You know, he had some friend that he kept talking about who turned out to be a girlfriend, and she showed up and went to a party, and then I was kind of, you know, really disappointed, and, you know, I sort of thought, oh, F this, and so then I went back to school and put him out of my mind, and we actually didn't get together again, and maybe a year and a half later, he, he wrote me a couple of letters, and then finally he called and said he was coming up to New York, but I was in Boston, it was like the first message on my message machine. Remember the voice, like this is how old I am, when voice machines were sort of getting big. Right. And, um, <laughs> they, were, they were blowing up back in the day. And I had one. <laughs> and then his was my, you know, one of the first um, messages on the machine. <laughs> God, I feel so old. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> but um, anyway, so he came up to visit me. And really by the end of the week, we, we knew we were going to get married. It was that quick. You know, it was that quick. It was sort of long and quick, right? I mean, I met him, and then, you know, we had this mutual friend, and I kind of would hear about him through her, but, you know, he had that girlfriend, and then I went and sort of had a stupid, you know, relationship for a while back up at Brown. And then, um, 
and then I went moved back to Boston and and then he called randomly and then he he did finally come up and visit me and when he did then that was it we were together after that and we got married 11 months later wow okay so now the other thing I want to ask you about you you kind of mentioned this earlier and uh you know you said you had a bone marrow transplant yeah like what happened there okay well um I was in my early 20s and I started to get all these bruises on my legs and um which I kind of ignored but anyway um then I got sick I was in school had this cough couldn't get rid of it went to the school doctor the call I was at college at BU Boston University and um then you know she gave me whatever she thought I looked pale she took my blood I was anemic and she told me to come back in a month and then I came back and I was still really anemic and she said that we need to check into this. So then she sent me to my doctor and he checked into it a little further with more blood. And he said, this is looking funny. You need to see a hematologist. So then I went to a hematologist and then about another month, they finally figured out I had something called aplastic anemia, which is when your bone marrow um, basically stops producing the three main blood components, the red, the white cells and your platelets, which stops bleeding. So all of my blood components were really low. But I was still at a level where, you know, I was living and getting along, but I was getting out of breath a lot. And I had these bruises because of the platelet, the low platelets, which, um, you know, stops bleeding. So um, it took another year and a half um, of that they tried. They gave me male hormones, which is why my voice is a little lower. And um, that didn't work. And then they tested my, my siblings. I have two sisters and a younger brother, and my younger brother matched, his bone marrow matched mine, so they knew that I was a candidate for, at the time, a very experimental procedure. So I really didn't want to have a bone marrow transplant, and it was just, you know, misery for a year and a half, just scared and not, you know, sick and knowing I could die, and I was only like 22 or something, and, um, but it just, I was getting worse and worse and worse, and it just became clear that I really had to have this bone marrow transplant, and I had, um, about a 50% chance of surviving if I went through the bone marrow transplant. And then the doc, my doctor told me that if I didn't have it, I had a 15% chance of living. So I decided to go with a bone marrow transplant. But I did everything. I went to a hypnotherapist and, you know, I tried different kinds of eating and I went to a, um, a faith healer. And, um, what was finally, that like? What are you talking about, a faith healer? <laughs> what does that involve? Um, I wrote a story about it, actually, called Recovery. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> well, I was living in this apartment in Boston, and I had two roommates. And it was kind of a, you know, I lived there for about nine years, and people would float in and out of that place. You know, we had people staying on couches. My brother stayed there for a while. There was this guy there, and we were watching TV one night, late-night TV, and it was a talk show, and this guy gets on, and he starts interviewing this guy named um, Carmu, and he was a faith healer, and he lived in Cambridge. <laughs> and he was just this sort of this big Buddha-looking guy, T-shirt, and he, he wasn't a very good interview because he, he didn't talk very much, and he just was very confident, and he said, I just cure people, and, you know, I, that's that. And so... Um, I said to my friend, I said, we have to go see him. <laughs> so, I mean, well, I just thought, I, I'm sort of, I guess you could say I'm kind of a believer in all those sorts of things. And um, so I, I, I found out where he lived. I think I called the station, 
and he lived in Cambridge Central Square, found his house, and um, I went and met him. And um, he just, you know, he was in his bedroom. He had me take this bath with his li- this liquid, and then he did this sort of hands-on stuff. And wait, 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 wait. So <laughs> were you you were you completely naked in this bath? Okay, so there was nothing weird about it. My friend came with me. Okay. And uh, I went off to the bathroom by myself. And yes, I took all my clothes off and took a bath by myself in the room. Nobody was there. And, you know, I sort of bathed in this liquid. And then after I took the bath, I got dressed again. And I went back into the into Carmu's bedroom and oh. just talked with him. Okay. So, no, nothing weird like that. I thought Carmu was doing hands-on in the tub. I didn't know. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> no, no, he really wasn't. He was really, when I met him in person, he was, I adored, I just adored him. He was sort of this Buddha black man and um, very relaxed, very strong hands. He had these big muscular hands and, he, he, you know, he laughed a lot. He had a big hearty laugh and he told me I was, you know, he was trying to make me feel at ease and he was saying how I was so anxious and nervous and scared and I needed to not be scared and I would be fine. And um, he told me about all the different people he had cured and, I told him I still wanted to work with my doctor, and was that okay? And he said, sure, whatever you want to do, no problem. And, you know, he had me do exercises and white light exercises, which I took home with me and did. Um, They were very simple. I would go home, and I did these sort of simple kind of visualizing with white light, and they were very simple sort of body exercises. I can't quite remember them now, but, you know, just maybe moving my hands or arms in a certain way. And I even took home some of the brown liquid in the bottle that I had used at his house and made my own baths at home. What is the brown liquid? I have no idea. I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds uh, questionable. It, uh, <laughs> it, it actually smells like minty ammonia. It smells like carmu. <laughs> He didn't smell like that, but the the stuff kind of smelled like minty. Maybe it had herbs in it. Okay. Maybe it was African herb stuff. I have no idea. All right. Um, you know, I was so. It's funny. I, I I'm surprised. I don't even know now. I mean, it's whatever it is. Thirty years later, you know. Um, but he gave. I I gave him. In, you know, like some some. I don't know, like a key of mine. You know that he could have. So when I went into the hospital. It's like he could sort of tune into me, and um, I just sort of believed in all that. And do you still? Kind of, yeah, I do actually. What? I, mean, I don't talk about it a lot because people think it's so crazy. No, but why? I mean, um, like where? And like where are your limits? Because like I wanna, I wanna be open. You know, I'm a, yeah. I'm a huge skeptic, but I like I also don't. Yeah. Want, I don't want to be closed off to uh, the mysteries of existence. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I think right. I think there's a, a, exactly. a fine line, but it's. You know, like, how do you discern? Do you know what I'm saying? How do you look at a guy like Carmu and say, this guy's uh, legit? Or there's, mm-hmm. or, or even if he's not legit, uh, you know, to the extent mm-hmm. that he wants to be, uh, he's at least a, a benign presence mm-hmm. who, you know, is trying mm-hmm. to do good. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Is that what yeah. the dividing line is? Like, how do you judge it? Well, I think I judge partly just on my instinct. And I think I had my friend come with me because I wanted to make sure because I, I didn't want to, you know, I'm sort of... Um, I guess you could say I'm gullible, you know, 
I didn't want to just be taken or something. Or And also he didn't charge, I mean, I think he charged like $10 or whatever I could afford at the time, which was not very much. You know, he, he wasn't rolling in dough or anything and oh, he, wasn't build, he wasn't building a crystal, you know, cathedral or anything like that. Um, a lot of the people that he, you know, seemed to deal with were, you know, just poor, down and trodden type people. But, and he was so unjudging. And so, I don't know, he's, it's almost like, you know, it seems to me that sometimes the most spiritual people are the most invisible. They're the, I mean, they're the ones that aren't, you know, beating their chest. And, well, well, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, if your spiritual leader is rich, uh, you know, I'm not saying it totally, it always excludes them from actually being uh, authentic, but it, it often does. I mean, like, I just, I find that a little bit suspicious. You know, if you're, if you're, if the leader of your uh, movement is li- living in a castle while, you know, like everybody else is sort of uh, struggling, uh, I, I sort of wonder about that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what to say about that aspect because I've, I guess I've never really dealt with anyone like that, but, um, he just, in, you know, in this particular case, there was something so down to earth about him. And I, and I don't know, there was something about his energy. Um, you know, I just, when I walk in a room, I can pick up on people's energies and it's a little bit like a photograph and go, I'll go back to what that flash I saw with my husband. But, you know, I think that I get sort of these photographs. I don't know how else to put it no, when I, I walk into a room. I and understand. it's, yeah, okay, so it's like sometimes it's not a visual, but sometimes it can be, you know, feeling my body or something. And um, so I always did bring my friend with me, but over time, then I think I went, after a few times, I went by myself a few times. And then I did go into the hospital for my bone marrow transplant. And I even called him on the phone a few times, you know, from my transplant room. Um, I just felt that he was there. It was just sort of, I wanted, it was just one more support system because I, I had a hypnotherapist. I mean, I was just going to rope in anybody and everyone as long as they made me feel good. That was sort of the dividing line for me. So, um, and I did, I did really well. I mean, is that why I did really well? I don't know, but I did do really well. And, well, so um, what, now when you say you're a hypnotherapist, just cause I've never done this, like, what does that okay. entail? Like, did you actually get hypnotized? Um, yeah, I worked on self-hypnosis and learning how to do self-hypnosis because one of my biggest fears about going into the transplant room, which was like, you know, the boy in the bubble, it was this basically room that was about, I'd say about eight feet by about eight feet, maybe. And so I was really afraid of feeling pain. I wanted to be able to manage, like I was so, that's like one of my biggest fears in my life. I, you know, just don't want to do whatever you're going to do to me, but don't hurt me. And, um, so I thought, well, if I go to a hypnotherapist, maybe they can help me, you know, cause I'd heard like people, I had an English teacher at BU who told me that she had natural childbirth under hypnosis and she didn't feel anything. So I thought, wow, I got to check that out. So, <laughs> that's, you know, that's some hypnosis, that's like amazing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and she said it really can work. So I believed her and I thought, well, I want to use that for me in case something, you know, I don't know what. So. Um, I went to Beth Israel, actually. They had this clinic. They had a hypnotherapy clinic. So I met with a kind of a regular psychologist, and we just practiced exercises again. So I, I guess I was doing a lot of a lot of things in my bedroom between um, Carmi's, you know, white light exercises 
and brown liquid and the hypnotherapist, um, the hip, the self-hypnosis, you know, it really is sort of this thing you do. I did it like 20 minutes a day where, you know, I would practice getting myself into sort of a quiet meditative state and practice trying to numb out different parts of my body. I mean, it's just something that, you know, like mind control in a way. So, you know, and it took, it took practice. So I never had to use it in the room and, you know, maybe it was just helpful for me to to help me relax because I was so anxious because I was so afraid that I was going to die and I was afraid to go to bed and, you know, I would wake up a lot of times like gasping for breath because I was afraid, you know, I had this fatal illness and I was only, you know, I was 22. I was, I didn't want to die. So, yeah, well now, and, and so what is, and this is something I've never really properly understood, but what is a bone marrow transplant? So bone marrow is actually a liquid okay. that um, is in your, it's in your bones. It's, it's an organ. It's the largest organ in the body. And they, they extract it, actually, um, and they put the person out, just really almost like sucking it out of the bone. I know that sounds gross, but all, it's a all liquid. The bones? Like, like where do they take it out of? Like, usually the hip. Usually the hip bone, because that's a nice, big, thick kind of a bone, I guess. And, that, and they, take, they can take it all out through the hip? Yep. They can, like, what um, it? it's, like, it's like vacuuming out? Like, are all the bones connected or something? Like, what about your arm bones? Don't they have marrow in them? Or Yeah, but they don't they need to take it out from there. They just take it out from the hip area. I guess there's enough from at that from oh, there. Oh, okay, okay, okay. If there's a, they can get enough from there, I guess you could say. Gotcha. So, um, and the the cool thing about bone marrow is it regenerates within a month. So it's, you know, it's not like when you take your remove a kidney, that's it, right? But your bone marrow, um, it regenerates. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, so anyway, they for my brother, they put him out, and then they. Um, took out two bags of, of bone marrow from his hips and then they filter it and then they gave it to me intravenously right in the blood. So it just goes right into, went right into my blood system and it was like homing pigeons. They just know they, meaning the bone marrow yeah. um, cells, travel back to the bone marrow and then they just sort of settle in like seeds and then they just, if, if, if it works, they settle into their new little home and they just start growing and and growing like they should and regenerating like regular bone marrow. You know, here I am, thirty plus years later. So, were you ever close to death? I mean, I mean, I know you were, you were, but I mean, did you ever like uh, was was there ever anything really perilous? Oh yeah, um, I had um, kind of what it would have. It was at a point where, for example, platelets, you're supposed to have, like, let's say, between 150 to 300,000, and I had about 7,000. So the, one of the dangers is that you can just have a spontaneous bleed, just nothing, you know, just suddenly bleeding that won't stop. So you could bleed in your brain and get a stroke. So one day I had um, a headache, a really bad headache, and then I saw this red thing in my eye, and I was like a shadow when I looked out, and it turned out that I'd had this spontaneous bleed in my eye, which is really close to your brain. And I ended up going to the emergency um, for that, and then I got a transfusion of platelets. And luckily, I didn't lose eyesight, and luckily, I didn't have a stroke, and it didn't go in my brain, and it didn't affect anything. But that was very scary. And then the other thing is I just didn't have enough blood, which is part of, you know, which is what... Um, carries your oxygen, the red blood. So, you know, I was very anemic and I got to a point where I just stopped going out because I lived on the third floor and I couldn't walk up three stairs anymore. It just the three flights, it was too much. It was I didn't have the, the breath for it. 
So I, I had lost blood, you know, in the hospital at one point for this chemo treatment and had trouble breathing, and that was really scary. So they had to give me oxygen. That that was a scary feeling. Well, yeah, and I mean, and I read an interview with you. Um, I think you were talking about this moment. Like you had like another kind of like metaphysical mm-hmm. moment where you knew – it was like the point at which you knew you were going to survive. Yeah, that was that was on um, Lit Park, Susan Henderson's wonderful blog. Um this was before I went into the hospital. I had, uh, I was taking an, a nap because I ended, you know, I, was taking, I took a lot of naps at that point, and I had sort of a dream that was really more than a dream. And again, it was one of these things that I I don't talk about a lot because it just sounds hokey. But it was it was like an experience, you know. And the dream was seeing like this huge white star in the universe and it was sort of communicating with me and it told me that I would be okay. And it, it, it spoke or did it just, it well, wordlessly? Wordlessly. Yeah. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the wizard of Oz where the guy's voice was booming. <laughs> it was just, you know, um, speaking, you know, I don't know what to call it, but you know, like when you communicate with animals, I mean, like, I, I just, it was talking to me in a way that was communicating with me that, and it was saying, um, that I would be all right. Um, but it wasn't like out loud, out loud talking. I don't know if that's clear. No, um, I mean, so it was, a, it was a, it was a big white star in a black universe. Mm-hmm. So you just saw, did you see space or was it just like a black background? And then, you know, I'm trying to get a, a clear visual. of what I know. I know. I wish I could. Well, let's say, you know, you're in the country somewhere and it's nighttime and you know how you can see stars really clearly. Well, if you can imagine, I don't know, or, or, you know, some of those outer space movies where you're just really deep in space and there's some big white, you know, it's a star. It was, it was like a star, I guess, or a sun, but I thought of it as a star and it just was for me. And it was a power energy, and it was just letting me know I'd be okay. I know that sounds completely insane. (laughs) I mean, I can't really – I have not yet learned how to talk about it. No, I mean, it defies defies language. I mean, I'm just feeling – see, it's always like – I don't know what my problem is, but I'm sitting here feeling deficient for never having had these kinds of, like, mystical experiences. Like, people see ghosts. And people, uh, you know, see flashes of light. And, like, I don't see a damn thing. I want to see something. Like, what's wrong? The ghosts don't want to talk to me. I'm not cool enough. Yeah, neither do the neighbors. (laughs) Yeah, right? No one wants to be. (laughs) Exactly. That's Uh, funny. My dog dog likes me. My my daughter so far likes me. But, no, it's just, like, I feel like certain people have access. It's, like, I think everyone has the ability, but certain people's antennas work better or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, I, I, and I, and I didn't ask for that dream either. You know, I mean, it just, I, I, what I can tell you is that when I woke up, I absolutely knew without question, I would be okay. Can't explain it. Damn. You know, it's just, it's the strangest thing. It's karma. Oh, I know. Really? Maybe it was. I never made that connection. Well, I mean, he was making you do white light therapy and stuff. I know. You're right. So it was so, all that, all the, like the accrued therapeutic exercises you know, when you combine them together, equal a star. See, I'm figuring this out. I, it's yeah. Clear, so. Well, and, you know, I, I, maybe there's some practice to it, right? I mean, yeah. I was open to it, and I've always sort of messed around with this sort of thinking anyway. 
So as even as a young child. So. Well, no, but it's like, uh, do you remember? I mean, you, you might remember this, but remember those commercials from way back in the day for those Time Life books, for like the the out of the ordinary or the supernatural mystical books, and you could order them as a set. Ooh, now see, I missed that commercial, and I wish I'd seen it. Yeah, I forget what they were called. It was like strange stuff, but there was like actually a book where it taught you, like there was an uh, actual like instruction uh, section for how to have an out-of-body experience. Oh, really? Yeah, and I remember as a kid, like, you know, you were supposed to, like, your head was supposed to be facing north, and you were supposed to be in a dark room with, the, you know, and, like, I did all of this. I was trying to have an out-of-body. Oh, it didn't happen no, for you? I couldn't. Because, you know, I've done that, too. Have you really? I'm like, I'm so out there. It's ridiculous. I never talk about this, by the way. Oh, well, you're going to talk about it now. What happened? I'm talking about it now. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I went through a period and I, in my 20s, all around the same time, um, actually, this was before I knew I was sick, where I was really into this sort of thing, and I wanted to try to do this out-of-body thing, and I would practice. I didn't read your manual. I didn't even know that. I, I missed that one. But um, I, I would get in my bed and practice. I would even tell my, you know, mom, mom, don't come in my bedroom right now. I'm going to try to, I'm doing my thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but the thing is, um, I don't know. I think I did it a few times where I kind of seemed to rise out of my body and look down. You know, you've, you've read about these things where you're yeah, you up in the ceiling looking look, down. Yes. Mm -hmm. That yeah. happened to you. Yeah. And you know what? I was scared, though. So I never really... I, I kind of did it a few times, and it scared me. So maybe I'll do it when I'm older, yeah. you know, again. Maybe I'll get back to that or something. But well, it kind of scared me. Well, no, and like speaking of fear, like this is the thing about uh, your experiences, you know, as a young uh, woman when you were ill. Like not many people at the age of 22 go through something like that and have to face their own mortality at that uh, level of intensity. And yeah. So I'm curious to know, like, did you – did you uh, – Gain some sort of lasting wisdom from the experience. And the reason I ask that, A, is because I think it's sort of a natural question, but also because I've heard people say that, you know, they go through uh, a serious life-threatening illness or a near-death experience, and for a little while after the fact, they do have this kind of, like, heightened level of consciousness and awareness that, uh, you know, gives them... Or I don't know. It's it's a perspective, you know, that they yeah. have, and an energy, yeah. and, and a kind of fearlessness, maybe. Uh, that's sort of part of it. But eventually, you just sort of recede back into your old human patterns, which strikes me as like somewhat depressing, but also uh, totally believable mm -hmm. in terms of the human condition. Like, do you feel like that experience gave you something that you've taken with you that you uh, have I, never I think lost? So. Like, what, yeah. what, is it? what is it? How would you define it? You know, and I don't know if it's because I was sick for so long because it, you know, dragged on for like a year and a half and then it was, you know, three months in the hospital and then it was another year before I could really sort of re-enter the world fully. Um, I just have, you know, what it did, I think for me is it really opened up some spiritual sense um, that I don't think I had before. Or if I did have it, um, it just became more accessible, stronger, and with me all the time. I mean, it's something I live with and I'm so grateful for, and, um, you know, it's a great comfort to me. But um, awareness of an end of life and awareness of the present, um, just awareness what, of what's important, at least I hope. You know, I mean, I'm still a jerk, and I'm still, you know, I have major lessons in life to learn and all that, but... Um, 
Definitely, you know, I mean, when it comes down to it, what's really important, you know, in terms of material things versus for me, you know, spiritual. I mean, I spiritual trumps all as far as I'm concerned and the heart trumps all. And, you know, those are the things that matter, relationships and, um, you know, a good dinner with some friends, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, and I mean, being true to yourself. Well, in, t- in terms of like the, uh, you know, the unknowable or like, do you have a sense of like, uh, what happens in the afterlife or is there an afterlife? Uh, do you have any sense of that? Or is it more like, I have no idea. It's just, I, I just learned how to live my life here now. I don't have any idea, but I think I kind of believe that there's something. I I think it's what I want to say. So I can't tell you what it looks like. And, um, you know, it's going to be a surprise for me when I get there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm not really not anxious to get there right now either. So, but um, I, I guess I do, believe, you know, whereas my mother doesn't believe it, that there's anything after. When you're dead, that's it. I, I guess I don't believe that. Yeah, I, I go back I, and forth. I don't, you know, I just don't know. I, I tend to yeah. think. I tend to think like, well, where was I before I was born? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's just yeah. like, maybe it's just like that. Maybe you just go to sleep. Who knows? But um, mm-hmm. it would be interesting if there was something else. I mean, assuming that it's like interesting. <laughs> I, you know, I know. I just, you know, I just feel that our our little brains just can't know everything. I right. mean, you know, so I they just I just sort of believe and that there's just a whole lot more out there than I can even imagine. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but there's a spiritual sense, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Boston and your upbringing and like where you come from. Like, tell me a little bit about uh, your childhood. Well, I grew up in, um, Newton, which is a sort of affluent suburb of Boston. Um, and, you know, speaking of nights women, I mean, there was that, I definitely pulled from that experience in terms of my fictional town in nights Swim. Um, it was, uh, so I grew up in the same house, you know, I was from age zero until I went off to college and I went to college for a while in Western, I started off at UMass and then I left there and went back to Boston University and then for grad school went to Brown University. So I never went very far, you know, I pretty much stuck to New England. Um, and what's it, like, what's, it like, what's it like Boston, you know, like Boston as a place to be when you're growing up and Newton in particular, I mean, is it, what was that like? Um, well, Newton is, you know, you can take a trolley into Boston, so um, it's very green and um, lots of houses and sidewalks and, um, you know, very pretty in that way, but very near the city. Boston is a great, I, I love Boston. It's it's not a big city, but it was always a city that I felt comfortable in when I was growing up. I mean, I would get on the trolley when I was, I don't know, 11. Um, we would go with, you know go with friends, go downtown, buy, like, leather string or something in Harvard Square or, you know, beads from the bead store. Um, and, you know, we did that a lot. So you always felt that the city was nearby. And, um, you know, my mother and my, my, my parents went to plays a lot, and they went to symphony a lot. And so, you know, we felt all those sort of cultural things growing up in my family, Um that was just something that they they did regularly. They had series to to, to theater and um, especially the symphony because my you know my mother played the piano and um, what else about it? Um, you know, I went to public school. Um, I walked to school. I walked to all my schools. I never had to take a school bus. Wow. Um, um, 
what else do you need to know? I grew up like in Night Swim. I grew up, um, you know, in a very, very nice house. I, I grew up in a brick Tudor house that was pretty fancy. And my parents belonged to a country club. And um, so, what did your what did your uh, dad do? Uh, he owned a shoe business, and then he lost it. So that was a big tragedy for our family. Um, oh, what happened? It was it was tough do for mind, him. Do you mind me asking? No, I don't mind. No, no. Um, so we grew up, you know, my parents were, you know, kind of high rollers and they were in the country club club set and they were traveling and going to Mexico and all these kinds of exotic places. And the shoe business that my dad had, um, he took over from his father, who, you know, he started um, the shoe business and they were in downtown. It was men's shoes. Um, and I guess what happened was there was a, a, um, a shoe, a strike, and all of my father's shoes were stuck on some ship. And so his whole inventory, you know, was sort of locked up. And a few other things apparently happened all at the same time, and it it caused his business to go under. So um, he was, you know, in my high school years, he was up at night and pacing and warring, and, you know, then the business closed, and then they needed to sell the house. Um, And it it was devastating for my parents. My parents separated and... You know, it was it was devastating with my father's, you know, it was a family business and he just it was a terrible failure for him. He never recovered from it. Oh, just God. was not able to recover from it. That's rough. Yeah, it was. It was rough. And, um, you know, they were hard. I mean, my father was a very complicated man anyway. So that just, you know, threw one more thing into the pot. So, so what what were you like? I mean, how did this impact you? Like, you know, how did you internalize it as a young girl? And, you know, how did it affect your behavior as you got into, like, adolescence and stuff? Um, it was awful. I felt like my whole life was out of control. I became sort of suicidal. Um, I took drugs. Um, I isolated myself. Spent a lot of time up in the attic, doing a lot of reading. Felt very alienated. Um smoked a lot of pot. Were you, were you like a hippie? Like, were you like kind of like a, a bohemian teenager? I was kind of a, I was kind of a hippie. I, I was hippie-ish. You know, I wasn't like all out hippie. I didn't go to Woodstock, although I knew people who did. And I didn't, you know, I wore bell-bottom, you know, jeans or whatever, no bra, that sort of thing. I think I probably made a bead, like night, um, what do you call it, headband. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wore, wore a couple of beads, but, you know, I still went to school, did my work, graduated early, graduated high school early. Um, and then we spent a lot of time going into the city and going to gay bars because I just thought that was really fascinating. I'm not gay, but I just was sort of fascinated. It was a different side of life. I just felt really hungry to know a different part of life that wasn't just this affluent, you know, suburb of, you know, white suburby place. Well, no, um, my, my, when I like I never I never hung out with gay people uh, all that much. I mean, there were some gay people in my high school, and like yeah, I'm sure I knew you know, I knew some people in college, but like it just wasn't part of the scene that I was in. Um, some hetero, and I don't know. I just I didn't have exposure to it. I'm a kid from the suburbs in the Midwest, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and I met my wife, uh, and I'm living near West Hollywood, and. Uh, oh, and, cool! My sister lives near there. Yeah, so we've got a lot of friends uh, in the gay community, and. Uh, I've gone out to uh, bars and uh, dance clubs with her and her friends, and I, I think they're way better, especially the dance clubs. Like I, I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not a dancer at all. Like I, I just, mm-hmm. I'm just not a dancer. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and society does not want me to be a dancer. That's just. Oh, uh, you. This, this is all. I can see the connections now. <laughs> I, 
I would say, okay, um, my guidance for you would be go to those dance clubs and just dance anyway. I do. I try. I do. Oh, try. Good. I'd have to have a oh, few good. drinks. I'm like, I'm not like, yeah. I'm not going to sit in the corner. You know, like I try. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's good. But that's it's good. hard for me to do sober. So, um, <laughs> but no, I just, I, like, I remember going to this one and there was like, you, know, you walk in and there's like women on platforms dancing. And then there's like a guy in a feather boa and he's, he's got like an actual like white python around his neck and like... There's just stuff happening, and I'm like, you go to like a hetero dance club, and it's just like a bunch of weird dudes like with too much cologne on trying to like, right, stuck to the wall. Yeah, rub or rub up against some girl. You know, it's just like I don't know. It just, mm-hmm. it just feels like a, a lame, a much lamer energy. Whereas like this felt like a really uh, fun, crazy party. Well, it was so fascinating for me at the time. You know, being in high school. It was also a time in the 70s, early 70s, where the whole gay thing, I mean, people were only just beginning to, to come out and, and be more public about their gayness. And so that just seemed all very radical. And um, I, I don't know. Um, I was just, I don't know why I was so fascinated by it. I, you know, for a while I thought, oh, you know, do gay people, is it real? Is it, you know, why is someone gay? And, you know, in the end, um, and, I, and I did go to a lot of gay bars and hang out. And in the end, it turned out my sister was gay. Um, and I remember finally calling her up and asking her, you know, if she was gay. And then it was so exciting because then she told me she was. And then, you know, it was just that this whole other side of my sister that she had never shared with me and kind of changed our relationship. And Wait, so you just called her up and were like, hey, are you gay? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. I, you know, one day I, I did call out. I'd gone to yet another, like, women's gay bar or something, and I was like, I kept seeing people look like my sister in a way. I mean, I know that sounds funny, but no, no, no. I finally decided, you know, I don't know. She'd been so removed from the family, and I finally called her up. I said, you know, can I ask you a question? And she knew what I was going to ask her. And, you know, because just by the way, she said, okay. You know, and I said, are you gay? And, and then she said, yep. And, um... I was like, oh, my God, are you going to tell mom? (laughs) (laughs) But I was also like, actually, the first thing I said was, oh, I knew it. I knew it. And I was, like, so excited because I'd been thinking about it, and I was actually really um, proud of myself because I had sensed it, you know, and I was sort of happy that what I had sensed was was right. And then I was happy to be able to share it with her. And I think she was relieved, too, I guess, you know, and I think – not long after she wrote a letter to my parents or something. Mm. And, um, you know, they're accepting, so that was good. Well, okay, so I want to talk, uh, before I let you go, I want to get into uh, Night Swim and, like, the process that you went through to write it, because this took a long time. I mean, this is... Sure like, did. Was it 18 years, you said? Well, yeah, I mean, 18 years since I started it and then put it away and, you know, back and forth and wrote another novel and, you know, so back and forth. It wasn't that it was the only thing I was working on, but it took a long time. And and that was because of just the demands of life or are you just a really slow worker? Cause I mean, I have friends who write beautifully, but they're slow. You know, they just don't write a novel in a year. It takes them nine years. Oh, there's no way I'm going to write a novel in a year. Um, part of it's probably I'm slow. Um, but, uh, and also life, I would say. And also we gave it a, a good try. I mean, I had a couple of agents who gave it a try and, um, you know, the marketplace just didn't go for it at the time. And it's really weird because I recently heard from this agent, you know, who saw my New York Times book review, you know, review of Night Swim. And she wrote and congratulated me and sort of said, I'm sorry we didn't connect. And I, and my 
she was replying to an email that we'd had from 2006. That's like six years ago. You know, she'd read this book. So it was a really weird time warp. So wait, she, you, you went out, she was your agent back then or you had sent it to her? Trying she, to was, get an she was an agent that was interested in the book, but we didn't, it was kind of like our stars got crossed or something. And, um, I thought she wasn't interested and I went with someone else, but she, um, had liked the book at the time, but and at, at any rate, we didn't, I didn't go with her. And, um, you know, now she's writing six years later and she was replying, you know, from an email f- from me from 2006 where I had, you know, we were talking about my book and I'd had some pages in there from Night Swim and it was another title at the time. But, you know, the book isn't so different than it was. What was the title? Do you mind me asking? No, no. It was called, I called it Sarah Davina, which is the name of, um, almost the name of the, of the main character. The the main character is Sarah and her middle name now is Davida because I'd learned from this Jewish person that Davina wasn't really a Jewish wouldn't have been the Jewish name, it would have. So that's why it slightly changed. But so that was the original title. And so this agent was then like, you think she was sniffing around, seeing if like you, I can be your agent now? Was that was it that kind of thing? Uh well, she kind of yeah. I mean, she, I think she kind of was wondering, you know, if I was free, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like I mean, it was flattering, but it was it kind of it was just a strange experience, you know. To think six years, wow. So I mean, and so do you feel like there's any benefit to working slow? Because like I have. I have feelings about this. Like, I think there's something to that. Like, it, and and it all depends. I mean, I think it ultimately just depends on how many hours you spend on a book or anything. Yeah. And if you spend, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't know what the number would be, but let's just say, um, you know, two thousand hours. And mm-hmm. if you spend those two thousand hours over the course of, uh, you know, eighteen months, then mm-hmm. great. But if it takes you mm-hmm. two thousand hours over the course of uh, eighteen years, uh, like, don't you feel like there's some benefit to kind of being slow and methodical and reviewing the thing and uh, allowing the thing to gestate? I don't know. Like, I, I, I do. I, I don't think something has to take 18 years. I mean, part of that for me was sitting in the drawer and, and moving on with other things, but then not wanting to give up on it. But um, I, I do. I mean, Flannery O'Connor, that was, I mean, she's sort of my my hero. She, I, I, I read a lot of her in that year that I I couldn't, after I was out of my hospital room and couldn't really go places, I, I did a lot of reading and read a lot of, of her. And she was always announcing how slow she was and that how nobody was going to rush her. And, well, she was also um, she was also sickly. Did that play into your uh, attraction to her? Yeah, she did. She had a, she had a, um, yep, definitely. And I just really admired that she was able to manage what she did. But, um, yes, I do believe that slow is great. And um, I don't think, and I think everyone's different. I think if you can write something fast and write it well, God bless you, you know? Sure. Um, I, I'm i just not one of those people. I mean, I'm trying to be a little bit faster, but... Um, so the, the next book's going to be like nine years? You're going to try to cut Well, you know what? Here's the funny thing. Okay, so the next book, of course, I've already written the draft over several years, and it's also been sitting in a drawer for a year now. And so I'm pulling it out again, and I'm I'm ready to get going and really try to finish it up in the next like six months. Um, but I've already worked on it a bunch of years, you know. Um, so I guess that seems to be the way I am. I mean, even the novel that I want to write after that next one, I've got notes about that one in my drawer that I probably started, you know, four or five years ago. So that's good though. You have projects. You have stuff, in, you know, in the. I do. 
yeah, I, I like to have that. It makes me feel comfortable. Like I have, you know, a goal and I, I need to have goals. Yeah. Well, what is your, I mean, like publishing wise and goal wise, like, do you have a sense of how many books you want to publish? Like, is there, a, do you have a number that you're going for? Do you know, like, was there, can, can you imagine feeling satisfied at any point? <laughs> um, I don't have a number. I think, you know, I think at the end of my life, I'm not going to look back and, and, you know, maybe if I'm lucky six or seven, you know, the most eight books is what I can imagine. You know, I mean, I have a collection of stories and um, I have a memoir that I want to write at some point that I also have started, you know, and spent like a year on. So I do have a bunch of things, um, but mm-hmm. so no, number has nothing to do with whether I, I, I would feel satisfied. I mean, if I wrote two really, really, really wonderful books, um, I think I'd be okay with that. I'd take one. I'm easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause well, like, you think about like like John Kennedy Tool or uh, you know there there are, there are so many like uh, Harper uh, Lee you know like you can think of, I know oh my god a million examples of just somebody writing one really good book that stands the I test know. of time and that would be that would be nice but yeah uh, housekeeping yeah or yeah and it would be nice as well to write like multiple <laughs> which right uh, you know which some people do that as well but. Um, I don't know. It's tough, and I think. Are you working on something? Yeah, I'm working on something right now, and uh, I was I was going really gangbusters with it, and it was like coming very easily, and now I've hit like a patch where it's mm-hmm. not coming as easily, so I'm like wrestling with it, and it's uh, mm. it's, it's, driving, mm-hmm. it's driving me nuts. But you know, that's part of the fun. It is, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever you want to call. I'm gonna have to. That... I'm gonna call Carmu and see if he can help me out. Oh, I know, and he's not here anymore. Oh, he's not. I did actually go back to his house. Years later, you know, because I, I moved away from Boston for a good while, and then I, when I came back, and he had died. And he had died, actually, of leukemia. Oh, wow. And he didn't want to go to the doctors. She told me, his, his kind of uh, partner told me. So um, even faith healers die. Yeah, it does happen. Of blood diseases, you know? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> So, yeah. Wow. Well, this has been uh, super fun talking to you and like yeah. unexpected and, and uh, completely interesting. And uh, I congratulate you on Night Swim. Oh, and, thank uh, you. We'll be eager to see what you come up with next. And, uh, you know, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's really fun. Okay, there you go, everybody. That's the show. That's Jessica Keener. Her novel is called Night Swim. Go get it. It's available from Fiction Studio Books. If you want to find her on the Twitter, her handle is at Jessica Keener 4, uh, as in the number four. She's also on Facebook, and her website is jessicakeener.com. Uh, Jessica this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. You can follow it on Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I am on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the music. Uh, the theme song music is Stereo Total. The other music is other bands. But go check out everything over at killrockstars.com. Final thoughts. Uh, Walter uh, is in stable condition. My dog, I'm happy to report. Uh, my daughter has also stabilized emotionally, as far as I can tell. And there seems to be an equilibrium settling over my abode. So that's nice. Uh, I am going to go out for some drinks in a bit. Uh, I have to drive downtown in Los Angeles. I have to fight traffic. And in a strange way, I'm sort of looking forward to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to listen to some music and, uh, you know, catch up on some phone calls and whatnot. And uh, Queen Latifah, uh, for the record, I should say that I cannot officially verify that she herself was on mushrooms. Uh, I'm simply guessing here. I am... uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of putting two and two together. I figure if the dogs ate mushrooms, uh, then, you know, she's probably on mushrooms too, unless the dogs ate all of her mushrooms before she could have any, which I suppose is a possibility. So, uh, that's all I've got. I think I'm going to sign off. I'm going to bid you farewell. Please remember that there is no word for war in Yiddish and that John Adams once called Thomas Paine's common sense, quote, crapulous, crapulous. Thank you for tuning in. Please do not feed your dog any raisins or any chocolate or any onions or any hallucinogens. Do not make your animal friend hallucinate.